Hi, I'm Andy English. This is Headley Boys, a small town's big part in the Great War. I acknowledge that the town of Headley is in the traditional territory of the Samilkameen people. Episode 9. Grief, Relief and Commemoration Two days after the breakthrough at Amiens, Dan Dollimore, now an experienced veteran at 21 years old, had his war finally come to an end. The success of Amiens now meant the War of Trenches was over. It now became a war of advance and movement again. But this meant that out of the trenches men were exposed to fire, and so even with tank support casualties were high. While advancing, the second CMR came under machine gun fire and Dan Dollimore was shot through the left thigh. The bullet fractured his leg and he lay there helpless under fire until he was eventually rescued and taken to a casualty clearing station. There they managed to save his leg, but his war was over and he was in for a long recovery in hospital. On the 27th of August, Bob Corrigan, fresh out of hospital, was wounded again. This time he was shot in the back. He was lucky in that the bullet just went through the flesh, but he was once again in hospital. On September the 2nd, the 54th were a part of the attack on the so-called Hindenburg Line, a series of fortifications that the Germans hoped to use for a last defence. Alec Jack was leading A Company across an open field when a machine gun opened up. A few men were hit. The rest immediately went to ground. Alec Jack knew he needed to get them up and move into cover, and was standing up and urging his men on when he got hit in the thigh by the machine gun. It knocked him down, and he took cover behind a couple of bodies. After the machine gun was silenced, he and another injured soldier supported one another back to the aid station. His war was now over. Just six days after Alec Jack was wounded, the Canadian Corps were preparing to assault the Canal du Nord, a waterway that provided a natural line of defence. The 29th Battalion were in the line near saint le and a party of their men were detailed to go and get the day's rations. What happened next is recorded in the army document recording circumstances of death for Private J. Lorenzetto. Killed in action. He was one of a party detailed to carry rations from the company ration dump to the front line. The party was taking cover from an enemy bombardment of our front line system behind a railway embankment when a shell exploded near Private Lorenzetto, killing him instantly. Jack was just 24. He was buried in the Dominion British Cemetery, where he lies to this day alongside 210 other Canadians who died in September 1918. At this point it was becoming obvious the war would soon be over, and so the news of Jack's death when it reached Headley was made the more tragic by this. He was the big brother to 13 siblings, and his death left a large hole that could never be filled. To this day he is remembered with love by his family, who have never forgotten his sacrifice. Jack Lorenzetto was the last Headley boy to be killed in action, but not the last Samilkameen boy. On 30th September Daniel McCurdy of Carameas was killed in action, while serving with the 54th. There were just six weeks left before the armistice would be signed, and with the end in sight for most of the men it became a case of trying to survive. They had done their bit, no point in getting killed now. For one man, though, he had a lot of time to make up. Thomas Calvert had enlisted way back in April 1915, and now, after three years on HQ staff, he was seeing the action he had always wanted. 
The Canadian engineers were often right up alongside the combat units, bridging, clearing ordnance and booby traps. No doubt, in part due to his nickel plate experience, Thomas Calvert quickly found himself a corporal in charge of a squad. On the night of the 2nd of November, he was part of a bridging operation in connection with the assault in the town of Valenciennes. This turned out to be the last major Canadian operation of the war, and the 54th were in support of the attack just to the left of the engineers. The casualties were light, but Thomas Calvert received a severe head wound and was evacuated to hospital. By now, the British in the north and the Americans, who were taken over from the French in the south, had almost reached the borders of Germany. The British army was unrecognisable from the one that had started the war. Tanks and trucks replaced the horses, aircraft patrolled the skies in numbers undreamt of four years previously. The men now wore tin helmets instead of caps, and gas mask respirators were an essential part of their kit. The nature of the warfare had changed, but on November 11th, 1918, when the guns stopped firing, the British had reached Mons, right where their war had started. Four years and a million lives lost, and here they were. But this time they were the attacking army. The armistice brought the fighting to a stop, but not the dying. Thousands of men lay in hospitals, and not all would recover. There was also the Spanish influenza, which was in the process of killing more people than the war. And hospitals were not immune to it. On 23rd of November, 12 days after the armistice, Thomas Calvert, formerly of the nickel plate mine Headley, died from bronchial pneumonia, a cause of death associated with the Spanish flu. Thomas Calvert's former general, Sam Steele, also succumbed to the influenza just six weeks later. The last Similkameen casualty of World War I didn't die in Europe, though. Robert McCurdy, who had been so dreadfully wounded at Festubert in 1915, had been invalided out of the army and had returned home to Karameas. But he never fully recovered from his wounds, and he finally passed away in the Headley Hospital on the 22nd of August 1919. His death was attributed to his war service, and as such he is recorded as one of nearly 66,000 Canadians who died in the First World War. He is buried in Karamir Cemetery and has an official Commonwealth War Graves Commission headstone, the same as his comrades in the huge cemeteries in France and Belgium. While Bob McCurdy was in the Headley Hospital, his family and friends came by to pay their last respects. At the same time, the Headley Patriotic Fund was holding a meeting to decide what to do with the now quite considerable amount of money they were holding. So many Headley men had been killed or wounded, not all of the money had been spent, and so it's decided to pay out lump sums to the returning veterans. By now, the men had been discharged from the army, and many had returned to Headley. All four Corrigan boys were back. John had served throughout the entire war with barely a scratch. Richard Clare had recovered from his injuries and went to work with the Headley Gold Mining Company, as did Alec Jack. Thomas Knowles and Joe Rotherham returned, as did Jack Howe and Leo Brown. They all received monies, but there were still some left over. And so it was decided to build a memorial column, or cenotaph, in memory of the men who had died in the war. A committee comprising of Alec Jack, Thomas Knowles and Joe Rotherham set to work. And within a very short time, the cenotaph was constructed. Incredibly, it just took four months from start to finish, and on Sunday, December the 14th, 1919, it was unveiled, on the very spot that Tommy Rotherham had stood when he photographed the 17 volunteers in August 1915. The Princeton Star reported on the momentous occasion. Princeton Star, December 19th, 1919. 
A monument of coast granite has been erected in front of the Bank of Montreal at Headley in memory of the 11 men from the place who sacrificed their lives during the war. The monument cost upwards of $1,000 and the ultimate intention is to have a couple of machine guns placed beside it. The names of the 11 heroes are carved on the granite and the monument in all is an imposing structure. The unveiling ceremony took place last Sunday afternoon and to Mrs G.P. Jones was given the honour of unveiling, while Reverend A.H. Cameron, a retired minister residing in Karameas, was the spokesman. In the evening, Reverend Cameron conducted a memorial service in the church where there was a very large attendance. Mr Cameron expressed his appreciation of being invited to perform at these services, this being his first chance since 1914 to express publicly his appreciation of Canadian soldiers. There were originally 11 men commemorated, but following research during the 2017 restoration, the names of William Henderson and John McClintock were added. 58 men from Headley had enlisted in Canadian Expeditionary Force during the First World War, Of these, 13 were killed in action or died on service. But a number of the men who joined were discharged or never left Canada. Around 44 men served in France or Belgium at the front. And of these, 11 were killed. One in four. On average, one man in 10 who enlisted with the Canadian Expeditionary Force was killed or died on service. Why was Headley's casualty rate so appallingly high for such a small town? There is no one reason. A number of these men were assigned as machine gunners, and they suffered a higher casualty rate. Also, these men were in the front line areas for long periods of time. Random shellfire claimed many lives, including those of several Headley boys, who were in supposedly safe areas. The disastrous March of First Raid claimed two Headley lives, but that was the only day of combat that saw multiple deaths as a result. The Headley men served in some of Canada's finest ever army units. By the end of the war, they led the attacks and were considered elite troops. But this reputation came at a high cost. The 15th, 29th and 54th Battalions are all represented on the Headley Cenotaph. But it is also important to note that Headley men served in both the British and United States armies during the war. Charles Saunders served the Royal Artillery throughout the war but returned to Headley and the mine. A number of American citizens on the reserve list left in April 1917 to enlist in the US Army, much as William Lydico and the other early volunteers had done in 1914. The US Army suffered over 100,000 deaths, mostly from disease, during its involvement in the war. At present, there is no national database for World War I US soldiers, so these men are at the moment largely forgotten and unknown. But given the losses, it could be possible that there are other young men who left their home of Headley never to return. Many of those that could, though, did return to Headley, if only for a while before moving on to new pastures. Such was the case of Alec Jack, who moved to Vancouver at the start of his successful banking career. The Dollamore brothers, like some of the other miners, moved on in the 1920s to more secure jobs. The nickel plate experienced changes of ownership and uncertainty for a number of years. Thomas Knowles returned and went back to work as an engineer, And on the seventh anniversary of the day that he and 16 other Headley men left town to enlist, he made another big step in his life. On the 24th of August, 1922, Thomas Knowles married Thomasina Boyd of Headley in the Methodist Chapel, now the Grace Church. After a honeymoon on the coast, the newly married couple returned to Headley and settled down to raise their family on Ellis Avenue. 
Thomas would eventually become the Headley Postmaster, a position he held until his death in 1959. Ina succeeded him for some years, and she continued to play piano for many more years in the church. She passed away in 1991, and both are buried here in the Headley Cemetery. Another married couple who spent their years together in the Smilkameen were Yorkie and Amy Mayer, who had married at Vernon Camp back in October 1915. Yorkie became the station man at Central Station, where the ore carts from the mine were sent down the tram line to the stamp mill. They lived there for a number of years, and he gained quite a reputation among the men who rode the carts down. He would give it an extra hard push first thing in the morning to take the frost off the line. He also had a cabin in the mountains, and the miners would often sneak him dynamite for his own private prospecting. Yorkie and Amy stayed in the area until her death in 1950, and Yorkie ended his days in a veterans hospital in Vancouver, where he passed away in 1961, quite possibly the longest lived of all the Headley veterans. These men had lived and fought in disgusting conditions, and although they survived the war, for many of them the war would affect the rest of their lives, and some of these lives were cruelly short. Tommy Corrigan died at 35. Richard Clare returned to Headley and got married. He taught at the school for a number of years before moving on, but he passed away at 50. In 1939, another global conflict broke out, and the war they had known as the war to end all wars or the Great War now just became the First World War. How must these men have felt to see their sons and daughters having to go and fight the same enemy all over again? Both Thomas Knowles and Alec Jack had sons who served. Thankfully, they survived. The start of the 1960s saw preparations for the 50th commemorations for all the key events of the war, but there were not many Headley men left to take part. Joe Rotherham had served as postmaster in Princeton for many years and had served as chairman of the local legion. In 1962, in his 90th year, Joe Rotherham performed one last public service when he laid the foundation stone for the current Princeton Legion building. He passed away a few months later and is buried next to Thomas and Nina Knowles in the Headley Cemetery. The first man from the whole valley to enlist, William Lidicote, spent the rest of his life in the Smilkameen. He brought land outside of Karamis and with his family contributed greatly to the local community. He passed away at 88 years of age in 1974, one of the last of the Headley boys. After he left Headley for Vancouver in 1920... Alec Jack soon found himself back in the Okanagan, this time at the 54th Old Base of Vernon. His career then took him to Powell River and then Duncan, where he retired in 1953. Alec and Mary settled in Qualicum Beach, where he spent his time writing. He kept in touch with many of the men he served with, even helping out those in hard times. One of his former comrades wrote to him to let him know what he had meant to his men. Letter from Pat Lyle. I, in my turn want to pay you a little tribute which I know you never thought you earned at the time. On one summer day, somewhere near Vimy Ridge, our draft of 50 men from Ontario arrived at the 54th Battalion after a long and arduous and apprehensive journey from Boulogne via Staples. They were accordingly detailed out to the four companies of the battalion, and Walter Huff and I were in the fortunate group detailed to A Company. With incredible efficiency, the NCOs of A Company produced a good square meal and were to man friendly and helpful. Finally, we had the honour of being welcomed to the company by the captain, who we had already learned from the NCOs was called Captain Jack. Lo and behold, he was a small man, soft-spoken, and obviously no trace of domination or bullying in his speech or manner. 
We soon learned from his men in A Company that he was an experienced professional soldier and knew every trick in the trade, but never was known to throw his weight around. Little did he know it at the time, but in that short hour of welcome, he made friends for life of those Ontario boys who knew that they had found a home at last. Such was the calibre of the man the Headley boys had as a leader, and it was a role he never gave up. Fifty years to the week that then Sergeant Jack had wrote and thanked the Headley ladies for their socks, and told of the erection and commissioning of the van's headstone with the 54th crest. He wrote another letter concerning a monument that also had the 54th crest on it. May 4th, 1966. Letter to the Editor. Dear Sir, I am now the sole surviving member of the committee appointed in August 1919 to select and have erected a memorial cenotaph or column in Headley, B.C. This in memory of the men who died in the First or Great War. Accordingly, I have been very pleased to hear of the work of renovation and repair recently carried out and to think that the neglected appearance of the cenotaph has been rectified. I believe that Mr Bob Evans of Headley was responsible for this good work and I thank him heartily. The cenotaph was paid for by the Headley Patriotic Fund, which was raised by the citizens of Headley and the Nickel Plate during the war years, and it amounted to a considerable sum, much of which was disbursed to returning veterans. Mr Thomas C. Knowles was a committee member who had the lion's share in the project, I forgot who the third member was, possibly Mr E.J. Rotherham, Princeton's late postmaster. It is a great pleasure to know that this 47-year-old memorial is now in creditable shape. Yours truly, A.W. Jack, Qualicum Beach, B.C. This was, of course, Captain Alec Jack checking up on his Headley boys one last time. Alec passed away in February 1975 at the age of 84. The last Headley boy. With his passing so passed on their memories of those times, the horror and the humour, the friendships and grief at their losses, all the experiences they went through together. There are no long-lived Headley veterans. None live to even see the 60th anniversary of the war's end. Other than Alec Jack, there are no other known recordings of them. Their voices forever gone. All we have now are a few photos some letters published in a long-defunct newspaper, and fading army records that don't even get near to describing what they went through. Their town, they know, has changed. Some buildings remain, but most have been lost to fire. There are, though, some ghostly traces left in the valley by some of the men. Highway 3, from Princeton to the Stirling Creek Bridge, runs on the old railway line, surveyed by that brave medic, Arthur Coles. Just past the bridge is the popular campsite of Picard's Creek, named after Nick Picard, the prospector who lived in the mountains just above, and who at 58 went and served in the trenches in France. However, there is one structure that still exists, and it was paid for by the whole town, including many of those men who would later serve and not return. And it's paid for every month by the mine and the town, and every day by the men at the front who paid with their blood. It was erected by the survivors, their friends and their families as a way to express their loss. And so they, the men who never returned, will not be forgotten. In a small British Columbia town, at the top of the main street, there stands a column of West Coast granite. It has stood in the very same spot for over 100 years. 
On the pillar is a lead-embossed crest that reads 54th Kootenai Overseas Battalion. The sides of the column have the names, ranks and units of 13 men, and on the front is the simple inscription, in loving memory of the Headley boys who fell in the war, 1914-18. Headley Boys was written, presented and produced by Andy English. Maple Leaf Forever performed by Cindy Rieger in the Grace Church Headley. I would like to thank and acknowledge the following. Jennifer Douglas, the Headley Museum, the University of British Columbia Online Archives, the Canadian Government Online Archives, all the families of the Headley Boys, Kim English, without whom this podcast would not have been possible. For a fuller list of acknowledgements and information, please visit headleyboys.com. This podcast is dedicated in loving memory to the Headley Boys who fell in the war.